Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where people are weird and we're kind of scared to let them read our writing a little bit. I'm Karen Peterson, joined as always by the amazing Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. How are you, Lauren? I'm pretty good. Yeah, people are weird. I've just, for some reason this week, I've just been like, it's not so much that I disapprove of any of you. It's just that I I think you need to examine yourselves a little bit. A little bit, right? This is weird, guys. This is getting weird. (laughs) Well, before we get into that, how was your Thanksgiving? My Thanksgiving was lovely. I got to, uh, I'm still in New York for Thanksgiving. I decided not to go, go home, so... I went uh, over to a friend's place and just, it was just a few people. It was lovely. We had a really good time. They made great food. Like my friend made a cheesecake. That's one of those, it's a a burnt Basque cheesecake. And so it's supposed to, well, it was weird because it's supposed to be burned on the top. Like you cook it at a really high temperature and so it burns on the top. So you get a little bit of bitterness Mm -hmm. and it didn't completely burn. And she was really upset. (laughs) she's like my cheesecake didn't burn Lauren I was like it's I and you know like I looked at at it and her roommate looked at her like it looks like a cheesecake so I think it's gonna be fine she's like but it didn't burn (laughs) and it was not ruined so it's ruined and it it was delicious by the way like it was it was great I honestly think it was one of those where she just maybe took it out of the oven a little too early or something (laughs) but it tasted so good like it was amazing so yeah (laughs) nice you know who would have had a perfectly burned cheesecake is um uh Giuseppe (laughs) yes he would have he would have (laughs) anyway uh yeah I went to a friend's house and it was funny because they are um Puerto Rican and and Cuban and they were calling me like a couple days before so we're going to have some, like, it's traditional for us, but it may not be traditional stuff for you. Is that going to be okay? I'm like, yes, I'm so excited. And they're like, oh, okay, because we're not adventurous people. I'm like, oh, I am. <laughs> so bring it on. So it was great. It was a lot of fun. So, that sounds lovely. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So, um, but yeah, going back to the whole people are weird thing. Um, so what did... Before like reviews and, and real information started coming out, what did you think licorice pizza was going to be about? Um, I mean, I, I don't, I will, I will put a little disclaimer on this. I don't like Paul Thomas Anderson that much. I don't like, I, a few of his films I've enjoyed, but a lot of his films are just really, they're not for me. Um, and, and so I wasn't play, paying too close attention to his new film. Um, but what I kept on hearing was that, you know, it's like a coming of age story in the 1970s about like two young people who kind of become friends slash get into a relationship. It sounded very like slice of life, uh, sort of, you know, maybe a little bit light and nostalgic. And that's really all that I knew about it. And then I began reading reviews and these are positive reviews, by the way. So I was like, oh, a lot of people really seem to like this film. You know, maybe this is going to be one of the, the Paul Thomas Anderson films I will actually want to see. And then I began reading. I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> it's, a, it's they're, they're how old and how old? And it's like kind of, and, and every, the, the thing was, I haven't seen the film, but every positive review that I've read of it has like been like, oh, this is like a sort of burgeoning romance. And I'm like, yeah, but she's 25 and he's 15. That's problematic. Mm-hmm. Like this still would be a problem, but I could get more on board if he was maybe 17, like just about to turn 18. I'd still have problems with it, but I would be less 
less uh, bothered by it. You know, like I remember commenting on that exact thing when Call Me By Your Name came out. Yeah. And I got called homophobic. I'm like, I don't have a problem with the fact that they're gay. I have a problem with the fact that Chalamet's character is 17 and the other guy is not, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's where my issue is. Like he's still technically a child. So, so, but I would have felt a little, I don't know. It's, there's definitely a difference between 15 and 17. I mean, this kid yeah. needs a chaperone for stuff and she is his chaperone for things early on and and I know one of the excuses people have is like oh but it's fine because they never have sex and it's like okay but that doesn't mean that this isn't a sexual movie you know and it because it very much definitely is even when sex isn't part of the like equation it still always is because there's the desire for it you know a 15 year old boy who has total crush on this girl isn't thinking about sleeping with her come on like that's ridiculous well and and that's what like everything that i've read about it i read your review and i've read like i said i've read a lot of positive reviews everything that i've read i'm just like this is it sounds like she doesn't really question it and it's like i'm sorry there there is i have been a 15 year old and i've also been a 25 year old if at the age of 25, I was like, I have a thing for this 15 year old boy. I would be like, there's something wrong with me. There is a mm-hmm. problem that I need to get investigated because that's not normal. It is not normal for a 25 year old woman to have any sort of romantic feelings for a 15 year old. Like exactly. period. Yeah. And, and I'm like, even struggling just like 15 year old boys are gross. Right? You know, cause they're, ch- yeah. they're like, they're teenagers. They're like children. They're sort of getting into being grown-ups, but not yet. And I, as a 25-year-old person, I would never have wanted to hang out with a 15-year-old. And I would be really concerned about any friend who did. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the thing. Like, there is one scene where she's questioning, like, she's talking to her sister. And she's just like, do you think this is weird? And her sister says no. I'm like... Yeah what even yeah it's fucking even weird the, even allowing for the time period i i really can't accept the idea that any grown woman and and at 25 you know it's not even the age of 20 right it's 25 right yeah and i cannot accept the idea that any grown woman or other grown women around her would not look at that and be like yeah that's weird mm-hmm. yeah exactly well and i think one of the reasons that people look past it so easily is that not only uh i mean she looks kind of young although like in real life she's 28 29 years old you know but they infantilize her character so much she does not act like an adult woman and not just because she still lives at home or because she like doesn't have a quote-unquote real job or whatever but just the way that she acts the way that she talks about the world she's she just comes across as extremely young and immature. And I think that's where people rationalize it because they're just like, oh, well, Gary is so much, so much more mature than his age. And she's so much younger than her age. So they kind of mentally meet in the middle, which is so backwards because anybody who knows anything about people knows that women mature much faster than boys do which is a whole thing. But anyway, yeah, so it was that. But what really, one of the things that really frustrated, oh, sorry, did you want to jump in and say something? No, I, I no, not really. I, I was just going to say okay. that, yeah, I, I agree with you. That, And again, and I, you've seen the film, I haven't. So I'm coming at it just from things that I have read about it. And all of the praise that I've read about it, I've still just been like, no. Like this, it's, it, it sounds, it sounds to me, like a fantasy, like a male fantasy. And you, you mentioned yeah. in your review about this, like, you know, getting a crush on the babysitter kind of thing, that that's what it reads like. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's what it sounds like. And again, the, the thing with the crush on the babysitter is like, okay, it makes sense. You know, 15 year old boy has a crush on a 25 year old woman. Okay, I can absolutely understand that, right? The 25 year old woman does not reciprocate. You don't go like, oh. oh yeah, boy, you're totally hot. It's like, no, you're not. Like, you are a child. Yeah. Like, remember adventures in babysitting when Elizabeth Shue gets hired to babysit this little girl 
but her older brother who's 15 has a crush on her on the babysitter and decides to stay home with him you know, and his friend comes over she knows what's going on she calls it out <laughs> like and she's only supposed to be 18 in that so whatever but anyway i digress um it was really weird though leading up to before i actually watched it you know so many people were really excited about it and you know i asked several friends like listen i'm not a big paul thomas anderson fan and so like where are you at you know people who are saying they loved him like do you just like love all of his movies or what oh no 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 i'm not really a big fan either this one just feels a little less like him and and i think you'll like it and after I saw it, I was just like, what? Have I not been clear about who I am as a person that people thought I would like this movie? Uh, first, there's the age difference thing. There's other stuff that I don't even want to get into right now because it's spoilery. Um, but there's also like blinding racism, like ridiculous and not even hidden at all it's just right out there and so it's stuff like that where i'm just like i don't understand why people are not calling this out why they're just accepting it so openly and and not just like accepting it but embracing it and loving it and it's been very frustrating this is i think really what the crux of what we want to talk about with this conversation but it's been really weird how I've had some some other friends, not ones who said I would like it, people who actually said I probably wouldn't, who also saw it, also didn't like it, but aren't going around publicly saying so because they don't want to be attacked for not liking the movie. Well, yeah, I, I think that that's what's getting increasingly weird. And, you know, the, over the past week we had, and, and a lot of this is occurring, right, in a very bubble, right? So this is fil a film Twitter bubble. Mm -hmm. But these are a lot of the people that are talking like this a lot of people that are a part of film twitter are the ones who are writing the reviews the people are reading the people are going to rotten tomatoes to see etc and it's getting increasingly clear to me <laughs> that they're just some weird people or that they're people who are really unwilling to question even something that they like and and i think you can absolutely like something like licorice pizza or the last duel etc and still understand why other people would have issues with it yeah. Um, and what is developed over many years on film Twitter, and I think many years just in film criticism generally, is this attitude of if, you know, certain films you must like, otherwise you are morally and ethically bereft. And other films you must not like, otherwise you are or morally and ethically bereft, right? Mm -hmm. that, that you, there, there it turns into this consensus that then if you depart from, or if you say, well, I liked, bits of it but I have problems with other parts you know etc or if you just say I really didn't like this and here's why there is this like you you know you didn't get it you're lying I've even seen um one of the first things that that I realized that made me begin to go looking at the reviews of licorice pizza was um was another another film critic mentioned the age difference and mentioned said like this is really disturbing and this like she was she was saying that it was basically grooming that that's what it looked like to her you know whether or not that's that's accurate etc but immediately there were like 15 people who were just like you know how dare you this is a lie like all of this stuff is like wait a minute, what, what is she actually talking about here? And so I went and began reading reviews. So I was like, oh, that's what she's talking about. Okay, like I can see how you would view it like that. Um, and, and yeah, the, the attitudes, it, it's getting weirder and weirder. Like the, the whole last duel thing with, you know, if you don't support this film, you know, you're responsible for the death of cinema and then expressing this absolute shock that mainstream audiences didn't go to see this movie in droves it's like you i can give you a list as to why mm -hmm. but i can explain to you exactly why people didn't go see this movie and then it's and then there's still that attitude of like how dare you say that it's like no i mean i'm not judge i'm not drawing a, a conclusion about the film itself i haven't seen the film i know why i didn't go see it um and i can give you a list we have a pandemic uh it is a very problematic subject matter regardless of who is dealing with it regardless of you know it's a difficult subject matter period um it's a two and a half hour film 
it's, it's being promoted on the basis of at least two male stars that people don't love that much anymore. Um, and that definitely it does not like, you know, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck in a medieval film, you're kind of like, is this a Saturday Night Live skit? <laughs> you know, all, all of that, but just the, the, the sheer shock of like, oh my God, no one went to see this film. It means that cinema is dead. It's like, I'm 100% positive that's not the truth. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the thing that's weird. You know, I mean, personally, I didn't think The Last Duel was was well made either i think there were a lot of problems with the filmmaking itself too that's my that's my own personal opinion um and licorice pizza i think there are definitely things about it that i i quite enjoyed you know there are some really uh funny um there are some really funny moments there's some great like production design um that kind of thing the cinematography I have a problem with Paul Thomas Anderson as a cinematographer. Like I hated the way Phantom Thread was lit, for example. But this, it's like it kind of worked because it made it feel a little bit dreamy. Like a comedy, I think I said this in my review, like a combination of sort of like this dreaminess and also this home movie element to it, you know? So there are things about the movie that are great. And so I understand why people like it. I wish those folks would understand why I don't. And that's what is so weird and so frustrating. And when I wake up on a Saturday morning, the day after I published a review and I'm afraid because I see how many views it's had, there's something really wrong with what's happening yeah. with the state of film criticism today. And the fact that I have friends who can't openly talk about how they don't love the movie and the fact that like, just me saying, you know what? I didn't really like this. And it's not just licorice pizza. There are other, like, look at the response I got to Tick, Tick, Boom. I haven't even talked about my feelings on Spencer, really, because I know how people react to this stuff. And it's so, it's so ridiculous and so unfair and so counterintuitive to the point of film criticism. Criticism yeah. does not mean, like, I'm just, I don't know we've talked about this a lot. We've talked about this a lot recently. The fact that we just can't have honest conversations about stuff and back and forth. You and I sometimes disagree on movies and we have great conversations about it, but there's none of that out in like the, you know, the film Twitter world. It's getting less and less like that. Just even off of film Twitter, just in circles with other film critics. It's like, you know, I know people, it's like, I'll just sit down like, oh, so what'd you think of this? Oh, I hated that. And then that's it. End of conversation. It's like, oh, well, I quite enjoyed that movie. I'd love to talk more about our thoughts, but yeah. clearly you don't want to do that. So, okay, I'll just go back to my bubble. Then you stay in yours. Yeah, there, there is this attitude among a lot of film critics uh, that, you know, <laughs> that they don't really want to criticize film. They don't actually like they're not interested in critiquing film. Um, they're really yeah, interested exactly. just, just in saying like I either loved it or I hated it and I, as I've said before a lot of the time my reaction to film is I liked parts of it and I think other parts could have been done could have been done better you know and sometimes that results in me kind of coming down more on I really loved it and more on I really didn't like it but a lot of the time it's somewhere in the middle right and and there's no such thing as a perfect film like that that's just that just doesn't exist, right? There are definitely films that speak to you more as an individual. Um, and there are definitely films I think that, that should be critiqued and need to be critiqued because they're presenting really problematic things. But we need to be able to have respect for people. Um, the, this actually kind of brings up one of the things that uh, was said yesterday that I think was really good. This is from a, a tweet from Jessica Ellis at Baddest Mamajama. Um, and what she, the, it's a good thread. I, you know, we'll try, maybe we'll try to link the thread in the show notes, but it, uh, she says, it seems like film culture is less about enjoying movies and more about beating them, figuring out their surprises ahead of time, attacking them for every possible logistical flaw. Like you were in competition with the filmmaker to prove who's superior. And that, that's a really good kind of encapsulation of, I think one of the issues that we're talking about here that, yeah there is this attitude of like, and, and I, you know, and I had a brief conversation with her and, and one of the things I said was that, well, it's like, 
there are a number of critics who seem to believe that film is an equation, right? And that you can solve a film, you can, and you can come out with the correct answer. Um, and usually the correct answer is it is good or it is bad. And if what you come out with is it, so, it kind of works in some places and it kind of works in other places, no, that's not allowed, right? It's a failure. Um, and and I, I think that she makes a really good point that this is, there's this attitude that we're like, that we're fighting with the film almost, that we're trying to solve the, the, we're trying to find the solution to it. And the solution is it is good, it is not good. Um, and, and that critics, and that that's increasingly the truth. And some of this might be a result of the binary, this, this idea that, that has kind of been propagated by Rotten Tomatoes, but even before that by people like Siskel and Ebert who were doing thumbs up, thumbs down. Um, that this, and usually they were a lot more nuanced than that, but it, it comes down to, you know, it is either fresh or it is rotten. It is either thumbs up or it is thumbs down, one or the other, right? I and of course, think, sorry. And of course we know that it's not that easy. Yeah, I kind of think the binary resulted from this kind of thinking rather than the other way around. I don't think the binary, binary caused this. I think it stemmed from it. I mean, there's definitely a, a sympathetic relationship between the two, yeah. I, I think mm -hmm. is what's happening. And, but Rotten Tomatoes in particular has kind of encoded it, basically. Oh, yeah, because one um, of the problems with Rotten Tomatoes is that they, they have like the aggregated score, not just the, oh, this percentage of critics say this movie is good, but they actually have like, oh, and here's the average score of this movie was like 7.5 or whatever, but they've made that so much less uh, accessible. Like it's really hard to find it now, um, what that score is. And it's never been the thing that they like put out because the percentage is so much easier to market. Like, oh, it's 96%. And then people go, oh, well, 96%. Wow, this must be amazing. And it's like, no, it just means that out of 100 critics, only four didn't like it. <laughs> That's all that means. <laughs> Doesn't mean that it's an A-plus movie. <laughs> well, so. yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, I have found, like, I was going through some of my some of my Rotten Tomatoes reviews, and I was like, man, I give a lot of fresh ratings. Yeah. Um, and I was looking through them, and I was like, well, the reason for that is that a lot of the time, I don't want to be unfair to the film. Mm -hmm. Because I'm like, on par, did you like this movie? Yes. Okay, then it's going to be fresh. Right. And that's, that tends to be what I ask myself, but then, and it, it, and there are certain films that I'm like, okay, on par, I really disliked this film. Yeah. And so that's going to be rotten, but I'm way more likely to give a fresh rating simply because I'm like, I don't want to discourage people from, you know, and I don't think that my single review is going to, is going to make that difference, but I don't want to be, be someone who's discouraging people from going to experience a film, even when it is imperfect. Mm-hmm. And so I'm much more likely to be like, this is good. Yeah. Right. Than I am to say that this is bad, unless it's like something that I, I truly despised. Yeah. I think I'm a little bit more uh, liberal with my rottens than you are <laughs> because I'm just like, eh, no, this movie isn't worth your time. There's better things to watch. That's kind of my criteria. So like I definitely, so when I was at a word circuit, we were on a four-star rating scale and we could do halves so for me the cutoff was like two would be rotten and two and a half would be fresh for me because then it was like okay if I'm giving something a two and a half that means it's got a lot of problems but it's still like there's still something about it that you know it's either it's charming or it's funny or whatever if it's a two that means like it wasn't a total disaster but it's pretty bad and just don't bother with it that was kind of where my personal cutoff was. But. Well, and that, that's the problem. And, you know, and we know everyone does it differently. Yeah, everyone <laughs> does it differently. Everyone has a different like attitude towards it. I, I am much more like, well, I enjoyed it. So. And that's why that aggregated score is so much more important than the percentage, but also so much less uh, sexy for marketing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it comes down to, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So. Anyway, uh, my humble plea today is that if someone doesn't like a movie that you like, 
have a conversation about it. Don't attack them or say that they're stupid or wrong or vice versa. If you, if they like it and you don't like, let's, we're allowed to like whatever we want. Everybody's tastes are different and they're informed by so many different things in our life experiences and our understanding and our education and all that. And it's okay for people to have different opinions. It's not okay to not accept other people's opinions and to just invalidate them just because it's not what you agree with. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Sounds like a lie to me, but all right. (laughs) Sounds fake. (laughs) Accepting other people's opinions. Right. I mean, geez, what's next? (laughs) Uh, Feminism. All right. Dogs and cats living together. (laughs) Mass hysteria. (laughs) We don't want mass hysteria. We don't. We put the cat back in the bag. Well, it's hard to put the cat in the bag because it's already out of the bag. <laughs> We're gonna shove that goddamn cat back into the goddamn bag. Don't be like the mayor from Jaws. <laughs> never, never compare me to the Jaws mayor. Never. <laughs> Anyways, this is oh, brought to you by Ghostbusters answer, the answer call, the call. as always. <laughs> Lauren does wear big earrings. (laughs) Anyway. If it's a crime to look good. (laughs) Consider me guilty as charged. Yeah. So that's fun. Let's just do that for the next hour. Just go back and forth. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, People won't hate it at all. No. Um, No. But uh, let's see. So this is the last. The last week end of november which means it's the end of noir november and so last week we did jump into ghostbusters because that was the hot topic of conversation and thankfully the percentage in rotten tomatoes dro- dropped on that movie so it became okay to not like it but anyway that's a whole other story um but so we were going to do this conversation last week but we decided to move things around so Today, we would like to talk a little bit about, like, wrapping up our Noir November uh, series, we would like to talk about gender and how gender roles and gender tropes are used in film noir. So um, let's, we want to spend the bulk of this conversation on women, but before we do that, let's talk a little bit about masculinity in film noir, how it's typically um, portrayed and and how it is uh, also attacked sometimes so Lauren why don't you talk a little bit about that well one of the things I, w- I wanted to address and it was you know it's not it's this is nothing new about film noir but that um n- a lot of noir uh takes is, is post-war films right it's particularly in the late 40s and, and into the the early 50s that tends to be about where a lot of noir films fall um, and we've got to remember that noir is not really a genre. It's a, it's a aesthetic basically. Um, and, and it, it, you know, involves certain plot points and everything. But one of the interesting things I think about noir in terms of the post-war context is that a lot of the time you've got men returning from war and basically being unable to fit into the society. And part of that is because of a lot of unacknowledged trauma. And you've got to remember that World War II, the concept, there were, there were concepts of shell shock. There were concepts of like psychological problems leading off of usually physical injuries, um, but just psychological problems as a result of being in war, right? And this was, this was for both men and women, but particularly addressed in terms of men. But there wasn't a, lot, a deep understanding of like PTSD or anything like that. There wasn't a lot of work being done on that. Um, but so what we see, I think, in a lot of film noirs is men who are basically traumatized <laughs> and don't know what to do with their lives um, and don't know how to fit back into their society because they've been engaged in a lot of violence. They've been very often celebrated for violence and they're returning to a world where obviously they're, they're not supposed to be violent anymore. Um, and they're, they're disturbed, they're distressed, and they don't really know where they're supposed to fit into that. Um, and this is clearest, I think, when you begin to talk about, uh, there, there are a lot of film noirs that actually make reference to the protagonist's war record. Um, and the fact that, oh, you know, he was in the Air, he was in the Air Force, he was in the Navy, he was in the Army. 
they often meet up with other men who were, you know, members of their units. Um, and I think the most, one of the most obvious ones is uh, the Blue Dahlia with, um, with Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. And there's a character in that, and they're all of the male characters in that are actually either, either veterans who have returned from war or men who have managed to evade the draft, evade going to, to war. Um, but there's a character in that who literally like has, I, I believe he has like a, a metal plate in his head and he was injured and he forgets, he blacks out and he does things that he then can't remember. So, and this becomes an issue of his characterization and he particularly when he, he has these episodes, he becomes violent usually. And so there's this implicit understanding throughout the, the film of him as not really being responsible for his own behavior and of being traumatized and of not having much of a support network to protect him um, and to help him through, you know, the fact that he, he's essentially, you know, blacking out. Um, so I think that in the representation of a lot of masculinity throughout film noirs, you're talking about a generation of men who have been traumatized you talk about generation of women who have been traumatized, but a lot of it is very focused on men. Um, and kind of rather than, you know, coming back and, and going into your steady nine to five jobs are either unable to go into those sorts of jobs or are unwilling to, they can't, they cannot fit into that society in the way that society wants them to. So they become criminals. Um, and that, that's, that's something that runs throughout a lot of particularly post-war noir, obviously. And it's about this like performance of masculinity, um, this performance of violence. You know, the, the only place that men who have been sort of conditioned to violence could go to in a post-war era is, is either criminality or remain in the army or become cops. And so you get a lot of, of protagonists that, that fit into one of those categories throughout film noir. I mean, that's still a reality today, too. So many yeah. guys come home from their military service and it's like they really can't assimilate because of the experiences that they've had. And they and they also struggle to find jobs within their skill sets. And so they end up becoming cops. And so we have a militarized police force. Well, and I, I think it's interesting in terms of in terms of World War Two, because there's less there's less of a recognition of that in a certain sense. There's not really a social recognition that these are traumatized men who don't know how to do things anymore. Right, yeah. Um, and, and we have a little bit more recognition of that. We're not doing great with it, but we, uh, we do recognize it. Um, yes. But so it's interesting to see in these, in these noirs that these, this kind of tacit understanding that there's an entire generation of men who don't fit into the society they're supposed to fit into and they don't know how to cope with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you get the, the guy who just drinks a lot and whatever, cause that's the only way that they know how to cope. And, you know, it's, it's interesting the way that we have glamorized world war II so much um, and continue to do so, even though we're, we see more, you know, I remember watching Saving Private Ryan for the first time. And that was the first time that I really had, not that it was the first time I had been done, but the first time that I'd really seen a movie actually show that like, wait, this was war and it was horrible. It wasn't something glamorous and, and just, you know, exciting. It was, it was war. These guys were, they came home. If they came home, they were a mess because of the trauma that they'd been through. And I think part of the reason that, it was easy to, um, but because of the way that, that they were depicted in these movies where it's like, yeah, like you say, there's this understanding that that's sort of what's going on beneath the surface, but it's never really addressed. And so if you're not paying attention to it and you don't understand um, the between the lines or the nuances or whatever, it's easy to just think, oh, well, this guy was a war hero, you know, or now he just doesn't like people or you know, whatever the case yeah. may be. Well, and one of the interesting films, I think, that I recently saw that does the, that actually ad addresses it more head on than a lot of films do, um, is, is on the Fox Noir Collection on Criterion Channel, and it's called Somewhere in the Night. Mm -hmm. And the story is about a, a shell-shocked veteran who comes home and he basically, he, it's one of those, he has amnesia, right? He cannot remember who he is. 
Um, and so the film is about him trying to figure out who he was before the war. Um, and, and he gets like involved in all of these sort of shady characters and, you know, of course meets a, a beautiful woman who like immediately falls in love with him, all of that. But one of the interesting things I think it does do is that as he's kind of going through this, he begins to discover that maybe he wasn't the best guy. And it's, it's sort of an interesting kind of psychological allegory for sort of him trying to both deal with a past that he cannot, he legitimately does not know what his past is, right? But it's something that he did. And so he's, he's having to deal with that and also trying to accept who he was and who he wants to be and who he becomes. And it's, it's a really interesting film for that. I think it has, it's overlong, it has other problems and it does have this like amnesia aspect to it, which is, as we know, is, is kind of silly. Um, but it, it's actually dealing with war trauma in a very interesting way because it's essentially him coming back and being like, I don't know who I am <laughs> hmm. um, outside of being, a, like all he can remember is his existence as a soldier. And he's having to figure out who he was before that and what that means and whether or not he can change and whether or not he needs to change. Um, so it's, it, it is a fascinating film in a lot of ways. Um, and, and I think it's one of the few films that actually does address this issue of really extreme trauma and remaking himself after the war. Hmm. That sounds interesting. I'll have to check that out. The Fox Noir collection is, is pretty, uh, pretty good. I, I just found it the other day because I, I have not been, um, I've been so busy that I haven't had a lot of time to uh, dive into Criterion this month. And the other day I was scrolling through looking for just anything to watch. And um, I'm trying to remember what I ended up watching after all. But uh, yeah, so then I found it and I was like, oh man, I wish I had known this was here sooner. <laughs> no, it's, it's a really good collection. And, and um, you know, very a lot of lesser known noirs in there also, which is 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 nice to see um but uh but i i think that a lot of the films that are on there and that are available on criterion channel do sort of highlight this this issue of of violence and of you know there's a lot of, in noir there's a lot of angry men and there's a lot of violent men and men sort of expressing emotion in really the only way that social that is socially acceptable which is through violence uh and and it's, it's interesting to look at that in terms of World War II and to kind of understand like this, this actually makes very good sense. It's, it's this disaffection, it's this inability to kind of be a part of polite society basically because you've gone through a situation where there, there are people who are trying to kill you, right? Yeah. And when you're coming back into a world, you know, what, what is the, the um, the sort of civilian concept of that. Well, the civilian concept is cops and robbers, basically. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a very much like the cops are trying, I'm a, I'm a thief, the cops are trying to kill me. I am a cop, the thieves are trying to kill me, period. You know, it's, yeah. it's as close as we can get to, to, uh, to something that looks the same as war. Yeah, that's true. That makes a lot of sense. Well, let's, uh, let's contrast that with how women are depicted in, yeah. Noir. <laughs> everything is in crisis, I think, in noir films. Masculinity, <laughs> femininity, everything. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think we talk, we've talked a lot about the, the femme fatale. Um, and we've, we talked about that a number of times on, on the, uh, on the podcast. And I think that we also need to talk about kind of her opposite number. <laughs> so the, the femme fatale is, you know, she's the dangerous woman. She's the sexual woman. She's, you know, very often punished in the end, but she is this sort of kind of preview of women's liberation. And the woman, again, like, like a lot of the male characters, the woman who doesn't fit into polite society, um, who's dangerous, who's sexual, who, you know, kind of does what she wants to do 
and and very often either won't get married or has affairs with multiple men, et cetera. So it's very much freer in her sexuality. And it's kind of pushing back against a lot of the patriarchal norms and patriarchal control and everything. And then you have her opposite number, which is very much the, the whore virgin dichotomy, um, her opposite number who's the good girl, right? And there's always, and a lot of noir, not always, but a lot of noir has this sort of girl Friday character who is sweet and kind of represents the, the home and hearth sort of element. And she, kind of, she often offers that to the, the male protagonist of like, you know, you can come home and be safe and secure in this sort of suburban world. Um, and often that doesn't work out, right? But, but um, she is, you know, often not sexualized at all. If, you know, if she has a sexuality, it's very subsumed and it's very much tied to, to being a wife and a mother. Uh, and she, she's the nice girl, the girl that you take home to mom, basically. And so you, you still get that kind of dichotomy. I think one of the interesting things is when those elements get, get closer and closer together. And I've recently seen a number of films that kind of take the good girl gone bad kind of idea and actually explore it. And one of the best ones um, that I've seen recently is The Blue Gardenia which is directed by, uh, directed by Fritz Lang, actually, who we talked about. And this is basically a girl um, played by uh, Ann Baxter who gets dumped by her boyfriend and is very upset and decides, you know, fuck it, I'm just gonna go out and have a good time because I'm sad and my boyfriend just dumped me. So she goes out, she meets makes up with- sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and actually like her friends are, she lives with two other women and her friends are encouraging her. They're like, go out, like do something. Don't just sit at home waiting for this guy who might not ever come back to you, like go and do something. And so she's like, okay, fine. I'm going to go and do something. What happens is she meets up with uh, Raymond Burr, who is a total gigolo and like keeps on buying her drinks she gets drunk, they wind up going back to his apartment and he, he attacks her. By the end of it, he has attacked her and she kills him or she thinks she's killed him. And she's really drunk, she wanders out, she gets home and most of the film is about like the next, the next day his body is discovered. And most of the film is about her trying to conceal the crime and conceal her involvement in it because of course, you know, there's all this like, well, he brought a girl home. So of course, you know, she must've been this, this loose woman who murdered him, you know, all of that kind of thing. And so it, it develops into this really interesting, very, uh, a very time, you know, very period centric, right? It's, it's very much of its time, uh, but it develops into this really interesting story about her sense of guilt and her fear and all, and all of the fears that are connected to that, that it isn't just about, you know, he attacked me and I killed him, but, you know, that she at some level would be thought to deserve it because she went out and got drunk and went home with the guy, right? Well, what did she expect? That kind of thing. So that, that victim blaming element to it. And the, the fascinating thing I think about the film is that it makes use of those concepts. It makes use of those tropes and sort of points out that it's not really her fault, right? She made a mistake. She shouldn't have gone home with them, but also he shouldn't have attacked her. <laughs> And you know the fact that that he's been killed is kind of his fault. He should not have been, you know, forcing her to defend herself, basically. So, uh, so yeah, you get you get a lot of films. There are a number of films that are like that about the, like I say, the good girl gone bad. The the good girl who makes, who does something, who does, you know, goes out and and has alcohol or gets involved with the wrong kind of man. Heaven forbid. <laughs> <laughs> well, and one of the things that I like about a number of these films is that despite their time period, despite the fact that, that, that this is kind of a subject, they do sort of highlight the hypocrisy of that. Mm -hmm. That like, yeah, like her friends are like, girl, go out, like do something, you know, get drunk, meet up with a dude, make out with someone, do like, don't just sit here being sad. Right. And, and 
and what she does, the, the worst thing that she does is that she makes a mistake, she gets drunk and she goes home with the wrong guy, right? None of which means that she is, that she should be culpable for murder, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or attempted rape. <laughs> right. Well, so one that I saw this week that was actually part of that Fox Noir collection um, that I think is a little bit related to what you're talking about. It's a bit different, but that's Black Widow. Um, so many gender issues in that film. Yes. Let's oh, talk yes. About it. <laughs> let's do. But so, I mean, the protagonist in that movie is man, but it's about a woman who has been missing or m- murdered. Uh, she's not missing. She's very dead. <laughs> but um she's kind of that young ingenue who wants to be a writer and wants to break her way into show business in New York. And, and she's kind of, you know, she's this like fresh faced girl. And so she's very easy to um, uh, underestimate, I guess, or just assume that, that she, you know, is kind of this you, know, you just have these assumptions about who she is and what her life is like and then after she is murdered then you start unraveling pieces and she's having an affair she's pregnant with some married guy's baby you know it's like all these things start to come out about her and then so it's like her her as the murder victim takes on a totally different um view than if she really had just been that like precious ingenue um and virginal girl that people kind of that you kind of think she's going to be at the beginning yeah you i i really liked that film in a lot of ways and it's it's complicated and mm-hmm. um and it's complicated in terms of its representation of women and of femininity and what is okay to do what isn't okay to do but you're you know all of this is talking about women having to navigate very male dominated spaces very patri- and very patriarchal spaces. And I don't want to say that, you know, just men are enforcing this. A lot of it is enforced by other women. Yeah. Um, and, and trying- Patriarchy could not exist without women as gatekeepers. Yeah, exactly. And, and as, of, as moral voices, right? As yeah. what's being like, you know, determining who is the good girl, who is the bad girl, um, you know, who is too sexual, who is not sexual enough, all of that kind of gradations. Uh, and but but so it's 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 a lot of women struggling to fit into those places and and in terms of what we were you know talking about earlier about the um post-war kind of relationships is that you've got a whole bunch of women right who are becoming more independent who are no longer solely about you know going for their mrs right right (laughs) um and who want to be writers, who want to be actresses and singers and, and all these things. And on the one hand, it's, it's often presented as being very dangerous and very, um, you know, like really she should be happy to just stay at home and cook for a man. But there's also this pushing back against all of those narratives. And that's what um, is happening, I think, in, in a lot of ways in Black Widow is that you've got this, this young woman who is very young. I think she's supposed to be like 20 years old or something like mm-hmm. that. She's just come to New York, right? And she's trying to navigate this space where everybody has the potential to prey on her. Everybody has the potential to use her. And she gets wrapped up in um, things, some of which are of her own making and some of which aren't, that you know, are, are kind of her trying to figure out where her place is. And she's ultimately murdered for it. And the solution to her murder is pretty interesting. It was one where I was yeah. like, I kind of saw that coming, but it kind of didn't. And I thought, this is where it's going, but also maybe it's not where it's going. Like, it's it's very clever. And I hope that people will watch it because it's really interesting. And and then, yeah, just seeing the way, um, the way the female characters in that movie are presented and the way that they interact with each other um is is very uh it's 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 really interesting the way that it's done and i think that it really says a lot like like we were just talking about it says a lot about the way that women do kind of set the expectations for what is what is acceptable what is proper and what is allowed well it's it's all yeah all of those gender relationships that really do sort of limit everybody right? mm-hmm. 
um, that, you know, you have to be really careful not to go home with a man. You have to, you have to be careful not to do anything that could be misconstrued. Right. Right. And that's, yeah, it wasn't that's, even just that it was dangerous. It was that you didn't want people to get the wrong idea. Yeah. Even if it's totally innocent. And one of the things that, and I, I don't think this is really spoiling it, that, that some of her relationship with the Van Heflin character, right. Is it's an innocent relationship. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a friend. I mean, and it's, it gets odder and odder as the film goes on, but it is this innocent relationship. So you're kind of like, well, really this should be allowed. Like you should be allowed to be friends with men, mm-hmm. it, married men, not married men, et cetera. But you're kind of like, well, if he was married, it's not okay. And if he's not married, it's not okay. So there's no, there's no winning basically. Right. Um, well, and also just the fact that he's surprised that anybody's thinking anything and that he doesn't understand how their uh, relationship is yeah. coming across or will be interpreted. It's, it's pretty interesting. Well, and it, it goes back to that, that thing, women as gatekeepers, right? The women all understand. Right. The women all know how the relationship is going to be interpreted, whether or not they necessarily believe it, right? Um, and because, and, and part of that is because the women are the gatekeepers and also because they are the ones who know that they have to protect themselves. Yeah. Um, they know what other women will say about them. And they, so they're having to navigate these spaces as well. And it, it, it is one of those films that I think really lays bare the very thin lines that people have to walk in that society. Um, mm-hmm. And that's still do in a lot of ways. And we're, and one of the disturbing things about some of these films is that we're still having some of the same conversations. Yeah. Right. There's still those attitudes of like slut shaming of, you know, if, if you dress the wrong way, if you, you know, well, why were you walking down that street? Why were you wearing that skirt? Why did you go out and get drunk? All of those. Why did you that, go to his apartment? What did you think was going to happen? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and on the one hand, you're kind of like, yeah, the, these are spaces that women have to navigate. And we do ask ourselves those questions. We do say like, I shouldn't go and do this because it might be misunderstood. It might be misinterpreted. It might put me in a position of danger. And on the other hand, you're like, this is stupid. I should be allowed to go out and have a drink. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, well, another film that I just watched, which you have not seen... Um, which also oddly is about show business <laughs> uh, is the velvet touch. And um, I was surprised that you haven't seen that one. Cause I just assumed that you would have, but uh, this is one I've never even heard of it. This one has missed me completely. Wow. Um, well, it's on TCM right now. So it's not on criterion or HBO or whatever, but um but it's uh, basically, so Rosalind Russell, she plays this um, big stage star, like big Broadway star. And, um, you know, she's, her whole career is centered around this, this director, producer, and like they basically made each other. And um, she's trying to get out. She wants to go do something else. She wants to, to expand her her horizon she wants to like go do film or something and I think there's a very specific project she's trying to to get onto and he's just like no you're nothing without me you can't go I'm not gonna let this happen they get into this fight and she ends up really accidentally killing him (laughs) um and that's all in the very opening like of the movie so that's not anything that's a spoiler but like that's the crux of what gets this going Um, But what ends up happening then is like, there are no witnesses to it. She's wearing gloves. So she doesn't leave any fingerprints or anything. And, and no one would ever suspect that it's her. And so she's dealing with this like guilt over this, this crime, which was really not even a crime of passion. It was really more of an accident um, by today's standards. She definitely did not mean to do it. Um, but also like no one would understand that. Right. And, and so she's trying to navigate that. She obviously doesn't want to get caught and go to jail, but she's also racked with guilt over what happened and watching the way that she is treated because of, of who she is because of her status. Um, and then watching the way some other people, including some other folks who end up becoming the suspects um, in this case, 
it's it's uh it's another one where it's just like this really interesting dynamic of power and gender and um i can't believe you haven't seen this movie you need to see it i i, I after that description i do want to see it um <laughs> it it's interesting that there are a number of these noirs that are about women being victimized or accidentally murdering men and then needing to figure out how to conceal it and how to navigate that and and having different reasons for for doing that as well yeah um and because like a lot of a lot of noir we're so used to seeing them as being psychological investigations of men um and that's kind of what you know i was talking about earlier but but it's interesting when you get these more female-centric noirs usually that are written by and directed by men um, although the blue gardenia was actually written by a woman and it's based on a book by a woman and you can tell i'm telling you right now you're like <laughs> i this is a woman i was even googling i was like yep woman wrote the screenplay you can always tell <laughs> <laughs> um but but to so to like really that that digging into the female psychology and and it isn't just about psychology it's obviously about the society that they're having to navigate um, and what they know they can get away with in society and what they can't. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one, of the, one of the films that um, I want to reference in, in reference to that is The Accused, which I wrote about the, the blue, recently came out on Blu-ray um, from Kino and is, is a really fascinating film in a lot of ways. Um, and the, this one is, is another one, basically, Loretta Young plays a psychology professor who gets, uh, after, after kind of going out to sort of talk with one of her students who's a very disturbed young man, he winds up trying to assault her and she fights him off and kills him. And so most of the film is about her covering up the crime and then trying to sort of work her way work her way through the fact that she's that she's murdered this this young man and the the fact that more and more people are beginning to suspect her and suspect her involvement it's it's a heavily psychological film because a lot of the film is about the men analyzing what sort of a woman would kill him um and so they begin and so she her terror is that they're going to basically figure out that she's the only one who could have done it um, via psychology, not even really via physical evidence. Uh, and, and so it turns into, and there are, a lot of, um, there are a lot of scenes in this film where it's basically Loretta Young being talked at by a whole bunch of men and essentially beating them at every turn because she's smarter than they are. And even at a certain point, um, a lot, you know, at least two of them are beginning to really suspect, it's just like, you, you killed him, like you did it. And she just has all of these answers for it and she's able to talk her way around it. But it's this fascinating kind of examination of trauma and of her experience of trauma. And the way that the film presents it is that this was some, like there was not a choice, like he was attacking her. It was basically either she lets him rape her or she kills him. That was really the only two options that she had. And so she hits him hard enough that, um, you know, with a, I forget exactly what she uses, but it's, it's pretty brutal actually for a film from 1949. Um, and so the, the audience sympathy is pretty much always with her. And the audience sympathy is, uh, is with her all the way through, even when she's being interrogated, even, and you, you begin to get this feeling of like, they're really bullying her. They really don't understand why anyone would commit this crime, even though they know that this, this guy like preys on women. There's all of this talk just like, well, he was a really brilliant young man, but he's a very promising young man. Uh, but he has, he had issues with women. And it's just like, yeah, you think? Like he attacked his professor. <laughs> that sounds um, good. I've never watched that one. It's either. it's very good. I don't know if it's available for streaming anywhere yet. Um, it is Kino, not. The Kino Blu-ray is really beautiful, um, but it, it's worth seeing. I think for for Loretta Young's performance, um, she is fantastic in it. And and just for kind of this, it's very cultural. It's very like specific to its culture. Um, definitely problematic in places, but a, a really fascinating and very, I think, sympathetic and empathetic view of this kind of a crime. Interesting. 
It's funny because as you were describing it, like there were things about it that reminded me a lot of watching the Velvet Touch. So <laughs> I'd be very There's, curious for you to watch that and then compare them. There seems to be this sort of subgenre of women committing crimes that then they have to cover up. And and again, where the audience sympathy is very much with them. Because it's really, it's more, it's not really a crime. It's it's like you said, self-defense or self-defense. Yeah. Yeah. Or just an accident, which Velvet Touch is kind of a little bit of both um sort of but yeah it's it's uh it's interesting are there any others you wanted to mention well just in terms of the psychology one of the films that um i think is really fascinating and i still don't know what to make of it is the dark mirror with olivia de havilland and this is the film where olivia de havilland plays twins uh one of whom probably committed a murder the other of whom did not but one of them has an alibi and the other one won't break her alibi. So they, they are like <laughs> identical, right? And so the whole story is basically a psychiatrist trying to figure out which one of them would be capable of murder. Um, and and it's, it's interesting, it's very pop psychology. Like it's one of those where like he shows them ink blots and he's like, ah, you're the crazy one. Um, but it's it's really interesting for Olivia de Havilland's performance because she is like, there are a number of scenes where she's basically talking to herself. Um, and, but also in her portrayal of these two very different women who look both are Olivia de Havilland who look exactly alike. Uh, and, and also in this, this like the male sort of investigation of the female psyche to try and figure out this whole idea that there is one of them who would be capable of murder versus the other who wouldn't be capable of it at all. I love the tagline for this movie. Twins, one who loves, one who loves to kill. <laughs> that is a great tagline. Um, <laughs> thankfully, the film is, a, is, is much more nuanced than that, I think. But, but yeah. Uh, and, and it's particularly entertaining because the, the cop, the cop who's investigating them is sitting there going like, I know the one of you did it. I know the <laughs> one of you did it. And I don't fucking know which one. <laughs> and they're just like, yeah. So what you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> Man, well, that one also is not available. So I'm going to have to that, be on the it, lookout for it. It, it is it is available on YouTube. You can, you can oh watch it on okay YouTube. yeah thank you yeah the that's the one drawback to uh, just watch is it doesn't say those so yeah I mean it's you know it's a little gray market kind of thing but but that is currently on YouTube so <laughs> <laughs> okay cool all right well any other final noir recommendations or anything related to this subject or just in general. No, I, I think that it, when it comes to gender and noir, it's, um, it's, you know, the more noir films I've watched, actually, the more I've been like, this is, it's a lot more nuanced than I think the, particularly the representations of the femme fatale or the good girl or things like that. You know, you've got these really interesting tropes that are then subverted. And, and that's something that happens a lot in noir. It's like they establish these tropes and then they're like, but we're gonna fake you out with them. Um, it's the, the, the femme fatale is less fatale than you think, or the good girl is not quite as good as you think she is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what about, right. what about you? Any final recommendations? Uh, I am just going to say that I'm really looking forward to diving more into that Fox Noir collection on Criterion because there's a bunch in there that I haven't seen. So I don't have a recommendation, but just join me in this endeavor because it looks like it's <laughs> going to be fun. <laughs> so, yeah. De definitely check out um, Where the Sidewalk Ends. Okay, yeah, that was one that I actually threw into my saved list because that looked really good. Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good one. It's sort of a counterpoint to um, Lara. Cool. Which I think is also in there. Yes, it is. Yeah. Have, have you seen Lara? I have, but it was a long time ago. Okay. I haven't watched it recently. So I'm going to watch that one again, too. And so awesome. Well, thank you all so much for joining us for Noir Vember and for Ghostbusters and all the other things that we've talked about this month. Um, 
December is kind of a funny month just because of all the holidays. Well, yeah, because of the holidays and, and what that does for our recording schedule and stuff. So we're not sure exactly what December is going to look like yet. We will. I know we've been promising it, but we will be doing some like fun stuff with our patrons uh, in December. And um, we're also we have something really exciting that we're working on doing this week. So if our website starts running a little weird for a day or two, just know that we are aware and it's part of the plan. So, uh, but we're really excited because some big stuff is happening. So, um, so just a little bit of patience while we're uh, dusting off some cobwebs and fixing some stuff up. It's going to be good. I'm excited. Um, yeah, me too. But- yeah. So, um, but yeah, like I said, we're going to have some stuff for patrons. And if you would like to make sure to join our patrons and be able to participate, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame. And then you can be counted among our awesome crew. We've got Adriana, Ali, Connor, Heather, James, Kathleen, Carriata, Mason, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Um, and if you don't want to be a patron, but you want to support the show still, you can go to co-fi.com slash citizen dame and, uh, and help us out that way. Um, we do have our Zazzle store. Part of the changes that are coming this month also will involve the Zazzle store. So, um, but you can still go in there and look around. Nothing, there's nothing new there right now, but that will be changing. So zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. And of course, uh, you can go to our website, citizendamepod.com, where we do have reviews of stuff. My licorice pizza review is there. Um, I, I have a couple, I've got a few AFI reviews that I'm still working on finishing up. Um, Lauren has some good stuff there too and a couple of things I think that are coming as well yeah I got a few blu-ray reviews and hopefully a few more like new release reviews perfect so make sure to go to our website and and see all the good stuff that's coming coming our way or coming your way there um, if you would like to you can email us citizendamepod at gmail.com and of course we're on the social medias twitter and instagram we're at citizendamepod and letterbox we are at citizendame We've got a great list of noir stuff and we'll be adding to that as well. You can also find us individually. Lauren, where are you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. And I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. So thanks so much and we will catch you next time. Bye. May I use your phone, Mr. Marlowe? Hello? Police headquarters, please. Hello, this is Mrs. Hello, what do you want, please? What? I called you. Say, who is this? Sergeant Riley? Well, there isn't any Sergeant Riley here. Uh, Wait a minute, you better talk to my mother. Hello, who's this? The police? Well, this isn't a police station. Well, if you know it, then why did you... Look, this is not a police station. What was that you said? <laughs> oh, my father should hear this. Hello, who is this? Yeah, but she just told you that... Oh, you're the police. Oh, he's the police. Oh, well, that's different. What can I do for you? I can do what? Where? Oh, no, I wouldn't like that. Neither would my daughter. I hope the sergeant never traces that call. You like to play games, don't you? Mm.